This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you very much for taking the time to join us on this latest episode of IHS Markets Upstream in Perspective. As usual, my name is David Boucher, and I'm very happy to be here uh, and be able to present to you this topic along with my colleagues uh, on today's episode. Now, I know that it has been uh, some time since the last podcast. I think that's just uh, the story of uh, this ongoing uh, pandemic that we're all dealing with. But I do hope that in that time, uh, you've been well, uh, things have been productive, and uh, overall, things have generally uh, just worked out uh, for you as positively as they can. So I think uh, with that, we can just jump right into the show. And I'll start by introducing my uh, my two colleagues who have been kind enough to to join me here today. So I think we'll go ahead and start with, uh, with you, Fernanda. Could you please uh, introduce yourself. So name, title, what you do. And I think that because we are all still at a point where we can't move around as freely as we'd like, uh, please do tell us where your office is located and how the weather is uh, there today. Okay. Hi, David. So my name is Fernanda Machado. I'm a associate director within the research team at IHS working for Pleasant Basins. And I'm located in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So here uh, we have, we are ending winter, starting spring, weather is getting better. I have to say that that was one of the worst winters we have been seeing here. And happy that now temperatures are getting high again. You know, from Rio, I'm not used to really cold uh, temperatures and, and I'm glad that we're getting to springtime. Very good. Although I think that there's quite a few people out there who might tell you that a poor winter in Rio is still pretty idyllic. But uh, <laughs> good, good, good that uh, things things sound turning turning better yeah. for you now. Uh, I think we are going to, in a, in the blink of an eye, move thousands and thousands of miles. So Tony, could you introduce yourself uh, where you're located and uh, what, what's the weather like there today? Hi, David. Yes, I'm uh, isolating on an island in the Pacific. People uh, say we're pretty lucky out here on Vancouver Island in uh, the province of British Columbia. We're in that transition to winter as Fernanda is transitioning to summer. So I think there's about two weeks of the year where Vancouver Island and Rio have the same weather. <laughs> yeah, yes. Works sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and so your responsibility is within, uh, within IHS market? Sure. I'm a senior advisor in the worldwide uh, Plays and Basins group in the energy and natural resources area to IHS market. Uh, I've been focused pretty much most of my career on upstream strategy and positioning, uh, portfolio analysis, that type of work. So I guess I'm on the uh, above ground side of the Plays and Basins group. I got to put it that way. <laughs> Excellent. And I think just to, to round out uh, what an international discussion this is going to be, uh, I'm looking out of the Paris office. It is a beautiful day today. Uh, so yeah, if you if you are not sitting in Rio or the western part of Canada or Paris, uh, you know, allow your mind to drift off. Not too much though, because we've got some interesting content. But uh, hopefully, uh, it's a nice little break from uh, 
you know, from work from home or the office or where you happen to, where we happen to be. So I think with that, uh, let's just jump right into the topic. And so today we're going to talk about, um, well, specifically my guests are going to talk about actually uh, Brazil's pre-salt play. Now, this is something that uh, if you've been in the industry for some time, uh, you've certainly heard about this, but as many things have changed over that time in the upstream industry, I think so have maybe some of the perspectives for uh, the Brazilian pre-salt, as well as some of the, um, you know, the hydrocarbons that are being produced from there. So before we get into a lot of great detail, I think it's it might be good just to set the scene. So maybe uh, Tony, you and Fran, you and Fernanda uh, could just define uh, geographically, what are we talking about when we're talking about uh, Brazil's pre-salt? Sure. Well, the pre-salt play the, resides, I guess, in the across basins. The Santos, Campos, and Espirito Santo basins are offshore Brazil. So that's just to position that for those who aren't familiar, sort of Sao Paulo up through Rio uh, and further north, about 650,000 square kilometers of prospective acreage across those three basins. And uh, it is a truly world-class, world-class play. Uh, they've been there's been over 48 billion barrels of oil equivalent recoverable resource discovered to date that's basically going back to 2005 2006 almost 42 billion barrels of that or you know over 90% or close to 90% has been discovered in the in the santos basin and just to further context the yet to find analysis that that we've done on this suggests that there may be as much as another 50 billion barrels of oil equivalent recoverable resource yet to be discovered in this uh, in this one play area and again with the santos basin sort of holding the majority of of that discovered resource so I mean, those are really big numbers but just to put them in a bit of global context if you look at the gulf of mexico uh deep water sort of one of the you know the, the veterans uh, familiar to a lot of our listeners i'm sure uh discovered resource to date in the u.s gulf of mexico offshore deep water areas about 29 billion barrels of oil equivalent. So that's versus the 48 discovered, but with about 22 billion barrels of oil equivalent expected or yet to find in that basin. So certainly the pre-salt is in that size, but substantially larger, one would argue. However, if you shift over to something like the Congo fan, so you look at West Africa from Gabon all the way down to Angola, where you've had about 42 billion barrels of oil equivalent recoverable resource discovered, you know, again, it's in that certainly comparable size, but we think with only about 7 billion left to to discover. And that's one of the really exciting things about the Brazil pre-salt is how early we are in the history of this play across these basins. And I guess just to throw out one more number, uh, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of discussion about Guiana, where ExxonMobil has found tremendous success with the Staybrook uh, block and another offshore uh, deep water play. There we've had about 13.5 billion barrels of oil equivalent discovered to date, a uh, recoverable resource. And uh, we, we think there's somewhere between 9 and 10 billion barrels of oil equivalent uh, left to be discovered. So, you know, a lot of industry attention focused on that play. But really, it's a, it's a shadow of what the, uh, what the Brazil pre-salt has to offer and appears to have yet to come. Sure. Well, those are some quite astonishing um, numbers and really appreciate you going into that level of detail. And my, my kind of thought and perhaps the, the thought of, of those out there in the audience is that given, uh, given these volumes, there's must be a lot of operators who are, who are looking at this and thinking there could be an opportunity there. So, Fernanda, turning it over to you, let's start with with just the question of 
how, what companies are, are looking, what companies are new versus those that have been there, and, and how are they positioning themselves uh, in this particular uh, part of the world? Okay, David. Tony, feel free to jump in. I know companies, uh, competitive landscape is one of your best. And uh, we have been seeing the lead of global IOCs there. Shell is leading ExxonMobil, Ecnor. Um, there are foreign NOCs as well, Chinese NOCs position there. Uh, it's interesting the movement they are doing within and outside the polygon and which has difference related to the fiscal terms associated to it and also the questions regarding policies that Petrobras used to have to be the operator on that region. So, uh, but we've been seeing uh, very competitive landscape, most in the outboard of the pre-salt polygon and the global IOCs and NOCs. It's interesting that the pre-salt still core for the, those companies, even with the portfolio optimization. So, Tony, anything to add? Well, I was going to at the uh, at the risk of showing my gray hair, David. One of the fascinating things about the pre-salt play has been the amount of uh, government intervention that has really formed how that play has and is going to be developed. Because the science uh, of Deepwater had evolved so much before they really started, you know, putting the turning the drill to the right and in, uh, in the pre-salt. And you know, the first big discovery there was the was the Lula field, or or sorry, the Tupi discovery, and that was back in 06. So you know, pretty recent. That was it wasn't the first, but it was the first material. But very early in the game, the government made the decision that the pre-salt was going to be the domain of Petrobras as the national oil company, the steward of the of the resource, and that the pre-salt was also going to be used to leverage the development of a of an upstream and service sector to grow along with pre-salt development. So very early in the game, uh, Fernanda referenced something called the pre-salt polygon, and basically what the the government did was created an area in which Petrobras, at the, in the early days, 2010, we're talking now, in which Petrobras basically had the right to operate and was to be involved in all developments. IOCs and other national companies could be involved, but they couldn't operate. They weren't, and and that cooled the interest of many while the science was being perfected in terms of how to actually develop this resource. Over time, as Fernanda said, those uh, restrictions have been loosened in an attempt to get more foreign direct investment into the play, but the polygon still exists. There are harsher fiscal terms in the polygon uh, versus outside of. Most of the acreage that uh, is being made available through bid rounds has been outside of that, of that area. Uh, so really the you know, in some respects, the the elite of our uh, uh, deep water uh, sector have been uh, kept at bay from really coming to grips with this resource base. Having said that, the numbers of the discovered resource numbers, as I've said, and the and the growth that we're going to see are pretty substantial. And really, that government policy has also impacted the players who are who are involved. You might uh, you might recall Petrobras. Uh, prior to the pre-salt was a company that was basically mandated by the government to go out internationally to explore and bring resource back, not unlike the sort of mandate the Chinese national companies had as Brazil was looking down a path of, of ever-increasing import dependence. 
And within a handful of years, Petrobras had basically been instructed to you know, divest those assets, divest that portfolio, come back to Brazil and get to work on the pre-salt. And it's been a, a pretty amazing uh, development story since then. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like it. And I think I want to bring out a couple of themes that, that you touched on. Uh, you mentioned uh, bidding rounds. So I think, Fernando, when we were kind of preparing for this talk, you you really asked that I kind of focus on this and bring it up. So could you just, uh, for the audience, maybe just provide some context on uh, the bid rounds and kind of what some of the interest has been uh, in this, uh, yeah, in the, in this latest round? Yes, I've said that because we have a bid round happening later this year, actually two bid rounds. In Brazil, there are four types, kind of four types of bid rounds nowadays. Um, the regular bid rounds that has been happening since they opened in the market with acreage being offered as a contract, uh, as a concession terms. And that's the same as the outboard that we are mentioned outboard of the pre-salt polygon. We have the PSA bid rounds that exclusive for strategic areas, which includes the pre-salt polygon, and that's a production sharing agreement. We have the transfer of rights bid round that happened in 2019, the first one, and the second one will happen now, in the end of this year. And we now have the, the open door that is um, constantly open source or open area that companies can bid or can show interest for some for some areas anytime. And generally areas that was offered in previous bid rounds that were not bought awarded to anyone and as well as marginal fields uh, that is being put on offer again. But the interesting in that is because these two rounds that are coming, the second transfer of right offers access to resource already discovered. And in the past, in the first one, there was some questions on, because of the terms of the round in where Petrobras should be compensated by previous investments and changes in the cash for future cash flow when getting new partners. First, I think I need to uh, explain a bit what means transfer of right, a bit of history. In Brazilian government, in order to increase its share in Petrobras, offered as resource to, to be explored by Petrobras in a, in a few fields, six fields in Presalt Polygon. Uh, Buzuz is one of them, and Itapu, Atapu, and Sepia. And what happened is that afterwards they discovered that there's much more resource than was expected by the time. And so this second tier, this first TOR bid round, Buzios and Itapu was awarded to Petrobras and Chinese NOCs. And in the second one, we'll have Sepia and Atapu fields open for bids. And the government has changed not only the, the sign-in bonus, but as well as defined the compensation for to be paid to Petrobras. That's the most important change that takes care a bit of the liability involved in the first in, in the first bid round for this excess volume, this transfer of right volume. 
And then we also have the seventh in bid round that it's one of those regular bid rounds happening in Brazil. And it is offering acreage in the outward of the polygon. And interestingly is that in the 16th and the 7th and the 15th, the last two ha that happened, uh, there was also blocks offered in this region and that attracted a lot of different companies uh, to display. We saw Wintershaw, we saw Chevron, we saw Repsol as operator that we have not seen within the Presol Polygon. So it's, it's interesting to have this competition outside and the result of the seventh in bid round may give us an indication of the appetite of those companies uh, of positioning themselves in this in this play with concession terms involved. I'm not sure if Tony has anything to add on that, but it also leads us to exploration efforts we have been seeing and the result, recent results. Exxon has been drill, drilling in this region, Petrobras has been drilling in this region, Total has planned for as well. So that that's something that we also may discuss uh, right. the results of those no, exploration. That's, so that's a that's a great point. I think that's that's a good place to 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 pause and not necessarily veer off in another direction, but I think kind of take this kind of the logical step further. Uh, because we've, we've talked about kind of what the definition of the, the pre-stop polygon is. Uh, we've looked at kind of companies positioning themselves there. We've looked at, we've looked at high level context as, as to what uh, these production volumes may look like. And Fernando, you had a good lead in there in terms of what the performance looked like of some of these drilling projects. So now, now getting down to a very tactical level. And so I kind of know where I'm trying to lead you both here, but it's not just the story of oil, right? So maybe Tony, could you start uh, telling the audience you know, continue on Fernanda's thought on recent performance, right? And then kind of what's the story that we're looking at uh, with regards to, to oil and gas? Sure. Fernanda's comments on the tr on the uh, transfer of rights, I mean, they're just an indication of, again, the, the magnitude of this play that, you know, the government transfers six fields over that they anticipate will have about 5 billion barrels of recoverable resource, crude oil uh, liquids, and find out within a very few years that that number was woefully below what they actually find. So now you, you're in this world of, you know, second, uh, uh, second entry into existing fields and unitization and equalization. It's it's a becomes a very complex uh, situation when the resource is that uh, is that substantial. But looking at you know looking at how this is being developed. So here at IHS Market, of course, we do a, a lot of forward-looking analysis as well. And if the operators do deliver on their expected volumes, you know, we, we could see production growing in uh, out of the pre-salt to, you know, 2.8, maybe approaching 3 million barrels a day of crude oil liquids and almost five by 2028. You expect in our current environment, some of that's going to be slowed down, but this is development of discovered resource, not, you know, the outcome of, of expiration. However, it's not all straightforward um, in terms of what you do with that resource and how you develop it. And, and a challenge that the pre-salt faces is on the gas side uh, of the equation. I'm going to let uh, Fernanda kind of maybe dig into the details of that a little bit. But, you know, in, in most uh, offshore developments, 
certainly next to a market as substantial as Brazil, you would expect that uh, gas discovery is a positive. You can, you know, put an infrastructure in place, bring it on shore, penetrate markets, feed, uh, you know, feed gas growth. Uh, different situation in Brazil, in large part because of the maturity of the gas market already. But before we, I guess, before we dig into that, just to give a bit of a sense of how material this play is going to be for some of them involved. Uh, well, Petrobras is, is at this point set to operate over 90% of that 2.8 bill, uh, 2.8 sorry million barrels a day of production we see coming on stream in the next three or four years. This play is pretty material to some pretty big players, and Shell's the one that always jumps off the page. We we anticipate that of their total new source production worldwide, and that's a that's a lot of uh, of activity. The pre-salt is going to account for somewhere around 23% uh, of that total new source uh, production over the next four years for Shell, and about 17, 16, 17% for Total, for Repsol, for example. And those numbers all grow as we move into the middle part of the decade. So 26 to 30, Shell's could be, could be securing well over a third of their worldwide new source liquids production from this single play. Pretty, uh, pretty sure. substantial. However, we do have, you know, limitations. So, Fernanda, if we want to pick up the the gas side of this story. Yes, thank you, Tony. Uh, just would like to add that for the oil, what we have in LIHS is that they have been proved very robust, have to have very robust economics. Um, and more than 80% of this liquid production is act, is expected to have break-even price under $40 per barrel. So that that that's something that supports the increase of result growth, the growth in the result production, and that which is projected to raise and account for over 9% of the total gas production as well. Uh, the three basins by the end of 2020. The gas is interesting because as the infrastructure don't see play, we have to study the, the gas story combined. So what we've been seeing is that previous to to the pre-salt growth and everything, post-salt fields in the campus bases were the, the main source of, of short associated gas. And the fields over there are well serviced by a network that is connected to Cabunas Terminal, where the gas is processed. And the system has adequate capacity for those projects in the, in the campus and also to accommodate further gas production in campus basins from pre-salt, but near the, the post-salt fields. That's where it came from studying campus the first non-associated gas production that will come to market, is expected to come to market, is uh, the 40 CF Pound Sucre wet gas field. Uh, it's operated by ICNOR uh, with Hepso and Petrobras as partners. And again, getting back to the recent exploration results and everything, this field is located close to the border of the pre-salt polygon. And why is it interesting is because the recent discoveries on the outboard side of the polygon are gas or gas and oil 
or with guest shows. So this can suggest that border of the polygon can be gas prone region. So getting back to, to the development, the gas issue from what is a red in production or expected to come in production in the next years. So we have this Ponja Sucker field expected to come start produce by 2026 and it's gonna be has the gas evacuated through a new build pipeline which you call which we call route five and this is gonna be produced through the first fpso commission in brazil that has the ability to process the gas at the field this is what ECNO has been saying about this field. And this is adding gas by 2026 to the already existing infrastructure. Then getting back to, to Santos, where most of the pre-salt fields are located and this um, the, the raise in, in gas production from that region adding to what we're expecting, but mostly from Santos, um, I have to say, I think over 90% is coming from, from Santos Basin. But together, the gross production of gas can reach 10 BCF per day by 2030 if companies' plans are followed. Sure. We have gas reinjection, we have flaring consumption at, at the FPSOs and production units, we have shrinkage, and we also have to reinject gas due to CO2 content. There are some fields in Brazil that has high carbon dioxide CO2 concentration in some fields of can that can reach even 40%, 44% of fields that are expecting to come on stream. There are other fields that doesn't even reach production due to this high level of content. So taking all this out, we get to a marketable gas volume projected to be to peak at about 5 BCF per day in 2030, which 4.5 would be coming from pre-salt fields. Okay. And, and then again, other interesting things that we've done in the gas study was the upside that we can have through the selling of NGLs. So for some pre-salt wet gas fields with high NGL content, we did um, an exercise assuming an open market, and also that we are able and have the capacity to process and treat the gas and also sell the NGLs that it can contribute with $4.79 per million BTU, assuming comparing with uh, Montbevere and Freight from the United States. So that that net back that we calculated could be an upside and an addition to a red competitive break-even price. I've not I've said I've talked about the oil. But in the gas, the break-even price on shore below $5 per thousand cubic feet and more than 7% are below two. And this is only sanctioned pre-salt projects, okay? All right. So I, I think um, what, what's interesting, as I was kind of listening to you lead us through the story, 
even though the two markets are very different, uh, there were definitely some parallels, I thought, with a story that was developing a few years ago uh, in the unconventional place, you know, the the um, the Permian specifically, where you did have a lot of associated gas and that brought some challenges. And it's not just the Permian, uh, but mm -hmm. I think that was, you know, there was a pipeline issue there also as well. And so I'm just curious from from both of you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot and it's totally OK to say, you know, the fact base isn't complete or, you know, it could change. But I guess, do, do you have any visibility based on on the fact base that you have? Uh, as to whether or not, like, like I guess, is is the presence of gas in this quantity, is that a, a net positive in addition to the oil? Is it is it like a hindrance to to producing the oil, or is it just you know kind of a neutral thing where um, the costs sort of balance out on the benefits? So I'm just I'm just curious, what's your assessment on the overall uh, impact of this 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 presence of gas in these quantities? Uh, Tony, do you do you have any views on that uh, to start off with? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really two aspects that, that come into play here. Um, one is there's going to be a lot of stranded gas resource projected for the pre-salt in the future. And that's a decision point. Can you do anything with it? There really isn't domestic market room. And that's, you know, some idiosyncrasies of the Brazil market that we study in depth in the sub-report in, in the series focused on the gas sector. But um uh, there really isn't room to accommodate. So that leaves the operator in a position where in order to produce the liquids, um, the, the crude oil, uh, you need to do something with the gas. And reinjection for most major developments looks to be like it's going to be the avenue. And of course, what that means, David, is incremental cost. So you need to have more compression. You need to have, you need to drill more injection wells. Uh, you need to put that gas back into the uh, uh, back into the, the structures and it, it just adds to your costs. Now, even with that, we're looking at break evens, you know, under $40 a barrel or in that 40 to $50 per barrel. So even with that, the pre-salt remains a very lucrative and, and uh, desirable play to be involved in. But there is this issue of, you know, your, your, that's a lot of stranded resource to be, uh, to be walking away from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Fernanda, anything to, to add before I, I want to pick up on something Tony said, but I do want to get your thoughts before we move to that, because uh, I know it's something you were very proud of. But before I do that, uh, any thoughts on kind of the gas, the gas situation? Yeah, I think um, th there are some discussions that besides the upstream side of it, of how we could accommodate this gas in the, the local market. And a lot has been said and discussed mainly uh, regarding the power industry, even more as we are facing now here a draw period and it's not raining, reservoirs are very low, and we have thermal power plants dispatching, which increase prices as they are, in a certain way, increase prices as they are relying in NGL and LNG. So there are some some discussions on that, on the system reliabilities and if they, if thermal power plants should be brought to base generation or not, but this this is a bit further upstream, and we have teams ex, uh, experts within IHS market to discuss it better than us. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, the, the gas market is is very complex, um, and I think I, I want to um, now basically allow you to to talk about you know where all this detail on the pre-salt has come from. So Tony, you mentioned. 
the gas sub report and Fernanda, we've spoken a couple times and uh, and you've rightfully been very proud of this series of reports that you've put together. So for the benefit of the audience, can you maybe just give the quick, uh, you know, two minutes and, and this is going to be extremely high level given the detail it's gone into these reports, but can you maybe just provide the audience the format the series took and then a little bit of detail on what each report uh, includes, please. Okay, so our idea was to present Brazil per salt in a complete way and trying to address the recent questions and most common issues. We have commercial plays and basins type of report and the first report we built called Taking it to the headwinds of the energy transition. That was our first report. It's a complete view of result and where we define it, we dive a bit on the geology side of it, we bring the commercial issues, we bring the competitive landscape, so everything's there. But then there are questions, as we did here, that we dove a bit more in other three uh, complementary reports. The first one talking about the gas issue, as we discussed here, volumes, pipelines, network, what, how much gross to net, how much needs to be re-injected, break-evens and all together. The, the second one, we try, try to discuss the upstream positioning, where companies are, how, how they are placed, what we can expect in the future. We see for the 17 bid round, large IOCs uh, registering the, themselves to to take part on it, but also we have missed some. So how, what to expect? And and then the third one, it's a more GNG report where we try to dive on more the on more technical questions uh, to define the play and the characteristics of it. So Tony, anything to add on the series? No, I think that's I think that covers it nicely. I mean, David. The probably aware, but certainly the um, uh, worldwide plays and basins, we've done a pretty strong shift to uh, taking a more holistic approach to these basin analyses. So playing a bit of a of a amalgamation role, getting our colleagues in, um, in Eden, in Vantage, um, companies and transactions, JEPs, political risk or, or petroleum risk services, costs and technology, bringing all of that expertise together around a, a common approach basin by basin. And it's um, it, it's been very interesting to be involved in because you, you're getting exposed to issues and analyses that perhaps you otherwise wouldn't be examining. Uh, but it's also creating a much more complete picture and storyline around how these basins, and in this case, a, a play, not only how we got to where we are, but what the challenges and the prospects and the potential are for for moving forward. And that really, I'm, I'm not sure we could have got the same depth and level of insight without being able to call on all of that expertise. But again, that's the, the richness of IHS market. I agree with that. And actually, uh, final sort of note for the audience before we, we wrap things up is that, uh, you know, of course, all of this is um, supported by not, not it's it's not just sort of the interlinks between the teams that that matter that's obviously a, a huge part of it but the the quantitative fact base underpinning mm. all of that is, is truly world class and so i would say that going back to some of the comments made during this uh, podcast you know uh, referencing kind of relative importance of this part of the world to, to certain operators 
we understand that sort of uh, it can be a sensitive topic sometimes, but it is completely supported by uh, by by very robust set of facts. So if you have any questions on that particular topic or would like to broaden the conversation around the um, the pre salt, you can contact Fernanda, Tony, uh, or any one of the experts on the uh, the relevant teams, and we'll be happy to have a more in depth conversation beyond that. But I think the takeaway is that tons of expertise has gone into this enormous amounts of data. And so this is uh, what we feel a, a, you know, a, an accurate assessment of the, the picture currently. But hopefully I didn't uh, put any words in, in your mouth, Tony and Fernando, but uh, certainly that's been my experience working here is uh, that you do get the benefit of all of that data and all of that expertise. So I think uh, to wrap this up, uh, I think well, to wrap up sort of the, the topic of the show, I think that uh, it's very clear that the pre-salt uh, is, is a world-class play. Um, there are associated with that clearly uh, high levels of, of positives, uh, but to, to use that word again, associated, uh, there's the story of the gas that's still ongoing, and I think that will provide some challenges. But I think the takeaway now is that uh, the activity is there and the results are there to justify the activity. So if you have any questions, uh, please do get in touch with uh, with me or with Tony or Fernanda, and we'll be happy to, to put you in touch with the right people. But before uh, I sort of close the show completely, uh, I do want to give the audience a chance to get to know our, our experts a little bit more personally. So uh, I will be completely transparent that I uh, have lifted these questions from a French podcast that I listen to called Les Rabilleurs. Uh, it's basically just a fun way of, uh, of getting to know uh, our experts. So they are obviously world-class uh, experts in their fields, but they're also people as well with some very interesting hobbies. And so I'd like to basically present a quick lightning round of three questions each. So I will start with you, Fernanda, uh, and then we'll move to Tony. So we're in a pandemic now still. Uh, it is, as we mentioned earlier, quite hard to move around. Where in the world makes you the happiest? Is it where you are currently or is it somewhere else that you'd like to be uh, when all of this is uh, is over, over with? I have to say that it's where I am here now. <laughs> so I'm not in Rio. I'm at my parents' place. Uh, they they live in the countryside of Brazil, so really close to nature. And that's something that it's really important for me to be close to nature. So I have a feeling when I'm in their place that nothing is happening outside, you know, as sure. in a cottage in the country. So don't need to wear masks, stay at right. home. This is this. I think it's my favorite place nowadays. Very good. Very good. Tony, yourself? Yes, we're all jealous of Fernanda's <laughs> cottage in the country. I was going to say, I, but... I, took, I, took a, I took a mental trip there. I, I, could, I could feel myself uh, being I know, I know. Well, when this is all, uh, when we're all moving again, my, uh, my favorite spot continues to be a, a beautiful climbing area in the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia called Lake O'Hara. If you haven't ever seen it, look it up. It's truly a, a special part of this world. Excellent. That's, uh, I took another little mental trip there. Uh, great. <laughs> um, okay, so next question. Uh, so I'll start with you now, Tony. So what are your uh, essentials in life? And it's a very open-ended question. Uh, I think we could probably all speak for quite a while, but uh, what are the sort of maybe one or handful of things that you absolutely must need to, to make it through your day? Uh, friends and family, starting with my lovely wife, Doris, but uh, that's what gets me through the day. Um, We've been very fortunate to uh, uh, to be able to have a bubble through all of this isolation. It keeps you sane and uh, 
uh, keeps you connected. That's pretty important these days. Absolutely. And Fernanda, you? Yeah, uh, I will second Tony. My family, friends for sure. My dog. <laughs> uh, I have a golden retriever that's my, my dog, <laughs> and I don't live without. And I really need coffee. <laughs> yeah, seriously, seriously. No, I, you know, I know that as much as this past almost two years now has been really rough. Uh, you know, if there's some positives to take, I, I I hope that you, Tony, and Fernanda, and of course the audience out there have have drawn some benefit from being around friends and family more. Uh, maybe not friends. But family, uh, it's been nice being around my wife as well, my dogs. And so, uh, yeah, it's uh, maybe an obvious answer, but maybe not so much because, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's taken, unfortunately, a pandemic to, to bring about that positive. But uh, those are some great answers. And I think we will close off and I will share with the audience uh, a little behind the scenes that apparently this was the toughest of all the questions. Uh, but I'm going to ask. Um, our two guests. And so, Fernanda, I'll start with you for this last question. I'm going to ask them for one piece of content uh, that they are enjoying or have enjoyed and would like to share with the audience. So what is that for you, Fernanda? Yeah, that was the most difficult question of all. So um, several things got to my mind. Uh, the reason what I'm reading nowadays are some gardening, but um, I think that one of the most interesting thing that I've heard recently was a TED talk about vulnerability that's called the power of vulnerability, where Dr. Brené Brown talks about her research and the importance of become, make yourself vulnerable to actually be happy. So it's interesting, worth to, to listen. Very good. And you, Tony? Well, in this day and age of <laughs> pandemics and isolation, et cetera, I find I'm being drawn more and more to, to uh, a lighter reading and a lighter work. And uh, Doris and I are working our way through right now the collected works of Christopher Fowler, who is the author of the Bryant and May series, a duo of octogenarian police detectives in London which, if nothing else, tremendously interesting to read, but a lot of depth on, on London itself. So um, a little bit fluffy, but uh, the last thing I read before that was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report in Canada, and that was some heavy going, I'll tell you. A little, little heavy yeah. reading. Well, for, for the audience, for the audience, you've been given uh, two vastly divergent recommendations in both time and <laughs> so uh, take, take your pick. But uh, I think what what, what you've seen now is that, uh, yes, we have world-class experts who will also happily have a conversation with you on lots of other things if you drop the line. So so don't uh, don't hesitate. We, we do want to thank you again for the time that you spent with us. Uh, we also would like to welcome any questions or comments that you have for us. We'll be happy to either answer them ourselves or route them in the appropriate place. Uh, and also, I just want to close off by saying that I hope that you all continue to stay well healthy and productive, and uh, very much look forward to uh, hosting uh, you all on the next episode of Upstream in Perspectives. So thank you all so much and hope you have a great rest of the day and week. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. You both. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. 
This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.